Hey, Blaine from DTC Pod here, and today we've got two amazing AI tools for you guys to check out. So AI is obviously eating the world, and these two by HubSpot, where you're really gonna love. So the first one's called Content Assistant. Basically helps you create amazing content, which matters more today than ever. Everyone's creating content, so you've gotta stand out. Um, with HubSpot's AI-powered Content Assistant, you can brainstorm, create, and share content of Flash, all inside a super easy to use CRM. So, you know, think things like, brainstorming blog ideas, blog outlines, drafting copy on any topic from marketing trends to media kits or writing value props for your landing pages, prospecting emails and more. Uh, the second one is ChatSpot, which is basically a conversational bot that sits on top of your HubSpot CRM. So it's gonna automate all the manual tasks inside of HubSpot, help you engage more customers, close more deals and scale a little bit faster. Um, so if you want to find out more about how to use AI to grow your business, check out hubspot.com slash artificial dash intelligence. As a D2C brand, you need real-time financial visibility to save money and make better decisions. Waiting for books from slow and expensive bookkeepers that don't get e-commerce is slowing you down. Trusted by hundreds of brands, Finaloop is a real-time accounting service built by D2C founders for D2C founders. Try Final Loop completely free, no credit card required. Just visit finalloop.com slash d2cpod and get 14 days free and a two-month PL within 24 hours with all the e-com data and breakdowns you need to crush it. What's up, DTC Pod? Today we're joined by Megan Adar, who is a tech advisor and investor and has a whole bunch of experience uh, working in some of the biggest companies that you guys all know. So um, Megan, I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you give us a little bit of context and background about kind of what you do, where you've worked, what you've done, and and what you're up to now? Okay. Well, thanks, Blaine and Ramon, for having me. Um, hey, DTC Pod. I'm super excited to be on. Yes, I'm a tech advisor and investor. I think my area, how I like to summarize it, is creators, brands, social, and commerce. Like those are the things I'm crazy about. I can talk about those things all day. And I think that space is kind of ripe for disruption and some innovation. So I kind of want to be part of that. Um, I worked in big tech my whole life. So kind of a big tech girl. I was at eBay for several years where I really found my love for e-commerce, marketplaces, and DTC in a way. Um, I was in strategy and M&A there early in my career. and then actually got the cool opportunity to work as an advisor to the CEO on restructuring the business after we spun off PayPal. Um, I was also formerly the head of shopping partnerships at Instagram, so really got to see that go zero to one, and most recently was the global head of partnerships at Snap. So yeah, lots of war stories, lots of social, social commerce, so excited to get into it, you guys. Sweet, um, and I'd love to go a little bit, let's, let's go back, let's go back and start with eBay maybe, and then we can kind of talk through some of the other experience, but I'd love to know a little bit more. Why don't you just set the scene for us? What was the commerce landscape like? What were you working on at eBay? What were some of the fun initiatives that you you guys were taking on from an M&A perspective? And maybe what yeah. were some of the early learnings in terms of like how that started to influence your, um, you know, your career and interests? Yeah, I think, you know, I really think eBay is like the OG e-commerce website. Like they started this whole idea of a marketplace and this idea of you know, where supply meets demand, where eyeballs meet supply on the internet. And I sometimes feel like people don't give them enough credit. Like they're OGs, they're ballers, you know? And I think 
Um, they disrupted the internet in their time, but really what I learned a lot about is how they maintained that flywheel of demand and supply, right? Like how they kept the incentives right, how they got the economy, their micro economy going. And so that was really fun to observe firsthand. At my time, what was important was they were trying to get away from the auction model because it was stifling them. So they were trying to move away from that classic auction model towards more like buy now, you know, buy immediately, again, making them more competitive with modern e-commerce, Amazon, etc. Um, and then, you know, they were trying. So eBay's core categories, which they're still really core, are like car parts and memorabilia and, you know, hard to find items. And they were at the time trying to move towards more, you know, mainstream items, fashion, toys, that kind of stuff. So it was a lot of that and a lot of just transitioning that model where eBay started thinking a lot more critically about the inventory they maintained on the site and working closely with sellers to maintain supply and stuff like that. It was a really cool time. Yeah, it was. It's interesting because back then community or creators weren't a thing, right? It was black mm -hmm. and white supply and demand it was the buyers and the sellers so you know as a as a previous marketplace founder i'm curious uh and, and given that you know snap and and instagram in a way they're kind of marketplaces but ebay is a very wrong mm -hmm. like your definition of a marketplace what were some of the elements um what did you learn about flywheel and what were some of the elements that really made the flywheel go at that time i don't yeah it's funny a big part there too yeah so paypal was a big part of it but it's funny because we had creators at eBay. They were just power sellers. Like those were our creators. You know, it was these like random people in the middle of nowhere who had World War II memorabilia and would make a lot of money on it. And they were part of this eBay community. We used to go talk to sellers. There was this like very avid community of sellers that kind of impacted on sales, but not just that kind of like the feel and the look and feel, if you will, of eBay. And that was a thing. So I feel like the OG creator were these power sellers. And, you know, eBay did a really good job of cultivating their community and listening to them. And honestly, they showed a lot of care to their creators. I don't think the same can be said about Instagram, etc. right now, and we can get into it. But I think it was like they really start cultivated that kind of culture of care. Um, and then when you think about like the flywheel to your question, Ramon, I think it's like it's like the chicken and egg, right? So the the classic marketplace conundrum, if you will, is what comes first, the chicken or the egg, the supplier, the demand, right? And I think um, a lot of people think of it as demand first, um, at least social platforms now prioritize demand, right? We need to go where the users are. Once the users are on a platform, then we can start doing partnerships, we can get content, we can do part, uh, supply, that kind of stuff. And so I think the classic answer to the chicken and wheel is demand. But what I'd say is that eBay really cultivated that supply base. And I think they did it in a way that marketplaces don't do it now. They talk to their sellers, they incentivize them. There was a very tight knit seller community um, that I think is unique and probably what differentiated eBay. Yeah, and one of one of the power dynamics I think they had is that the supply can be the demand and the demand can be the supply, meaning like the buyer can become a seller, finds out, oh, I can sell my stuff here. So you don't have to sort of set two go-to-market motions at the same time. And sometimes, um, you know, those are dynamics you, you don't think about when starting a marketplace and are some things that make it really hard to scale 
um, a marketplace if if you um, have to acquire both sides. You have to find product market fit twice. So um, to not totally. to not make this a a, a marketplace um, a podcast when you Wait, mentioned- I'm so down. <laughs> yeah, we could go on. Uh, what you mentioned about um, like you know, for example, Instagram um, being being different with the creator side of things. I want to dive into that, but I want to take a step back at like this, the definition of what a creator is, right? I feel like it's thrown around so much um, today. And so uh, what do you define as a creator? Is it, is it, you know, a content creator or an example is like a creator can be a power seller on eBay. How do you define creator? I mean, I think creator as a term started with influencer, right? It was someone who's pushing out content and that kind of became the creator. But I think of creators as voices in the community, like who are big voices in your community and who's driving kind of movements in your community. And in eBay's case, those were those big sellers, those power sellers. They also had really big buyers who were part of the community who spoke up, who there were newsletters, there were like forums. It was like this very weird, quirky community. And there was like drama. People would like, you know, talk poorly about other power sellers. Let's just, you know, to put it simply, they were really tight knit and it was in fact a community. So yeah, like a creator is a voice and a voice that impacts, I think, the marketplace or the platform. One one thing that I just wanted to kind of jump in on that you got my my mind sort of going, Megan, in terms of like marketplaces is I think we've seen so many startups like try to go after these social commerce sort of plays. Right. And I think one thing that you the one point you made about eBay is like they spend so long cultivating a really strong seller experience and a really strong like supply base of all these different sellers and that's not it's something that's really hard to bootstrap bootstrap overnight especially when you're dealing with two-sided marketplace dynamics so it's just it's just like a really good lesson i think even in terms of as we see all these social commerce platforms popping up and like live selling and all these platforms that are trying to go after it it almost seems like a really a good place to start and i'm curious if you even if you ever saw this at ebay we're were people ever like building apps on top of eBay's infrastructure or anything like that? Is that something that you guys ever thought about? Like where you could have different formats, like plug into eBay's existing selling infrastructure? Yeah. I mean, I don't remember ever working on like APIs or like white labeling the product, but like, I think there was so much opportunity with eBay and Look, I mean, the reality is eBay is still around. They do live selling. They're in the conversation. They're in the mix, but they lost a lot of market share, right? And like, I don't know what caused it because the company was functional. You know, the marketplace was healthy. I don't know where the strategy went wrong. I suspect a lot has to do with the fact that they lost PayPal and it kind of took the wind out of their system. You know, it just was a lot of pressure on the bottom line and you know, their golden goose was PayPal that kind of enabled them to be creative and play and care in the business. Um, and and I agree that when you're kickstarting a marketplace for any other platform, it's really hard, right? And I think, you know, say you're going demand first, how are you as a platform going to be considerate of and intentional of the supply? And Something I write a lot about and speak a lot about is that the platforms today, they're not intentional about the supply. They treat the supply as just the supply, interchangeable. 
And the reality is I'm a partnerships, you know, former partnerships person. So I have a bias, but I think the reality is the more you minimize the importance of that supply, they're going to go elsewhere. And now um, going off track, but I still think it's part of the conversation here. Now, you know, the suppliers, the content creators, the, you know, sellers, whoever they are, and the audience, they don't need Instagram in a way they used to, to be connected. These people can find them, demand can find supply elsewhere. And so I think it's a true marketplace in that it's getting democratized. And these bigger platforms are going to have to fight harder to to retain their demand and supply both. So what are some of the ways that you suggest early founders to evangelize their community to find the unique traits um, because, you know, it's not, I, I don't believe it's like te this article on like how to build community. There has to be unique traits that you need to identify in your community to build it. So how, how do you suggest to founders to go about building their community and making it unique? So I think what's really interesting is the rise now of supply first platforms. And I'm referring to Patreon, OnlyFans, etc. Because what they're doing is they're switching the model from an Instagram, right? And they're prioritizing the needs of the quote unquote supply, the content creators. And so taking the content creators first in mind, they're now creating the incentives and benefits whereby the content creators can bring their audiences to the platform. So I think like new founders, they just need to really think about where their sweet spot is. Is it in demand or is it in supply? And second, even if it's in supply, be really thoughtful and intentional about how you incentivize that demand in and how to keep them in that flywheel. Because I think it's really easy and lazy if Patreon only cared about its creators and didn't think about the audience that the creators are to. So um, I think you have to be really authentic and intentional. And I don't mean those like in a cliche way. I think it's really being thoughtful about that community you're building and the incentives you're setting up. Sorry, why am I not on Do Not Disturb? Sorry, guys. Hopefully you can edit that out. I'm on Do Not Disturb now. Ramon, the other thing I was going to mention in like, Megan, both Ramon and I have experience building um, supply-driven marketplaces, and this was something that we saw. So, if like the first marketplace I started was restaurant um, booking marketplace, where rather than having every single restaurant, we needed a huge supply of restaurants, but we also needed to be very intentional with them. And Ramon, I think you saw this in trend as well when you guys were building it. You actually like filtered out the supply so who were creators in your stance. So rather than just have a whole bunch of creators, you wanted to prioritize the ones that were really good. Megan, in the scale of something like an Instagram or a Facebook or a Snapchat, like the demand is like you guys are clearly a demand driven marketplace because the scale yeah. is just so, so insane. Um, but I think I think in terms of like what you're saying and what you're seeing in some of these other creator platforms is they're starting to build these more like authentic, like niche vertical marketplaces around the the supply side of things. Yeah, it's really interesting. You just reminded me of a trend I saw when I was at eBay, which is eBay was the super marketplace, right, in the beginning. But then what started happening is niches started being created within that space. So Etsy started, right, a marketplace for handcrafted goods. And then more recently, of course, but there were others, Goat for sneakers. And so basically all the verticals in eBay 
became their own apps or businesses. And so similarly, right, I kind of in real time and now I'm now putting that or conflating it with what's happening with Instagram, which is, you know, you're not satisfying the supply, the supply is going to go elsewhere. You're not satisfying the demand. People are going to find more intimate social networks like Be Real or whatever it is right now. So I think it's going to be that like, um, you know, the spreading out of kind of people and supply. And that's going to really change the dynamics. I mean, that's really what I'm betting my career on as well right now. Things are going to get really interesting. Yeah, it's kind of like the debundling, unbundling of of whichever way you want to yes. be forward um, of, yes. of eBay and Instagram. But then you have platforms like, you know, even whatnot, like is whatnot fashion only or are they horizontal? I can't remember exactly. So I think they're focused on hard to find items, um, but they are expanding and they're trying to be global. But if you think about it, live shopping right now is pretty verticalized. You kind of have shop shops, which is luxury, whatnot, which is a lot of memorabilia, hard to find items, pop shops live, which I believe is more fast fashion. So yeah, it is kind of interesting that they start verticalized. And then the question is, are they going to stay verticalized? Are they going to come together, merge or, you know, join or a big platform would kind of absorb that functionality or that company? Yeah. Um, It's interesting how, you know, I wonder if it's like, so for Instagram shopping, for example, where it's like, how has it been that long for Instagram to make it work? Is it a blessing and a curse that like, they already have the supply almost and they're trying to plug in a marketplace because like whatnot and all these other are building the supply with the experience as it's growing and it's like well we have the biggest supply in the world but it's like is that also their achilles heel um like how 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 has that played totally yeah i think that's such a good point ramon because you think about where supply or sorry where demand is and you're like naturally we just layer on supply and that's going to be a functional marketplace but i mean i have the stories of instagram shopping not working that way right and if you really zoom out you guys probably are familiar with the concept of jobs to be done right and for your users or for your listeners the idea is that a product has a specific job that its users are hiring it to do right and so in instagram's case users are hiring instagram to watch their friends's picture of content or you know follow their content creators and then when you layer on different jobs you confuse the users and i think like at a fundamental level with instagram shopping we were conflating our jobs to be done we were confused People were coming to the platform to interact with friends and creators, and then we were throwing a shopping experience at them when perhaps, you know, that wasn't in alignment. And so, yeah, I think that's a super fair point. And uh, when you build from the ground up, like whatnot, you have that jobs to be done nailed as opposed to trying to, you know, just throw it onto your thriving marketplace. The reality is, though, it's like throwing spaghetti on the wall in Instagram where there's so many users that your numbers might still be higher than what's, uh, than whatnot. Because even if the conversion's lower, the numbers, the raw numbers are higher. But then long-term, do you develop or lose that relationship of trust 
and delivering to your users what they're looking for. And I think that's like the big question, the open question, if you will, with Instagram for the future. Yeah, it's because the the intent of when they join and the intent of when they use the platform um, is not the same than what you maybe want it to be. And, you know, I think this is a valuable conversation for the listeners because there's all this talk about DTC brands, even having media arms and properties and acquiring existing audience, et cetera. And it sounds really good in theory, but in practice, it's really hard to just turn on the switch and monetize the audience from, and then have them change their consumer behavior to now transact when they were there to previously get educated or connect with other people, et cetera. I have one question on the commerce side of Instagram. Isn't, isn't the other side of the coin like, well, how do ads work? You know, if there's no intent there, then how are people buying things on ads? They must surely want to buy it from the shopping experience. Yeah. So I think there's a couple things there. Um, first is with Instagram shopping, we were forcing checkout. And remember, when you force Instagram or Meta checkout, you're asking users to give Meta their credit card information, you know, all this stuff that people have never done before. It's asking a lot from your users. And second, it's about like how things are delivered. The algorithms that power the ad, that's based on your interest. So a lot of the times the ads are really successful, right? Because you're, you know, you've, you've we've all probably like impulsively bought a sock or something stupid from Instagram ads, right? Because the targeting's so good. But when you get Instagram shopping organic content in your feed, you know, it's off-putting. It's not what you were expecting in your feed, right? Again, back to that jobs to be done. It's not an ad. This is a creator you follow, but then suddenly there's like a collaboration organic post where the brand's trying to sell you something with the creator in it. It's a confusing experience. Don't get me wrong. I still believe that Instagram shopping can be a huge player, if not the main player in social commerce. It's just that it needs time. And I felt like the company was just getting impatient for revenue, but it needed more time to find product market fit. We are really excited to announce that DTC Pod is officially part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network is the audio destination for business professionals. And we're really excited about being part of the network because we're going to be able to keep growing the show, bringing you guys amazing guests, and obviously helping you guys learn from the best founders, marketers, and builders of the most successful consumer brands. So anyway, keep listening to DTC Pod and more shows like us on the HubSpot Podcast Network at hubspot.com slash podcast network. One thing that I wanted to jump in and say, I know we, we'd been talking about Whatnot. Ramona, I was, I was chatting with my friend who works there and they Whatnot actually had their retreat in Miami last week. So we were catching up and he was telling me all about like how they build their supply and what their focus is on. And, and actually they said a couple of things that you guys had mentioned. One, they're really focused on things like Pokemon collectibles, like these sort of things, because there's these niche communities. So like one of the biggest um, one of the biggest areas that people are watching are these like card unboxing where it's like sports car memorabilia and they'll unbox the cards. And then like, it's almost like this community layer too, where you'll get these big groups of buyers that like come in and everyone's like, oh, I'm going to have card one in this opening. I'm going to have card two. I'm going to have card three. And they'll like open it. So that way everyone like sees it. So it's like a really engaging thing. And the other thing, Ramon, that'll probably resonate with you a little bit, they're really focused on monitoring their supply side of things. So they're not just letting anyone 
sell, whatever, let anyone go live. So they have a really exhaustive creator vetting process. So that goes into what we'd been talking about, about, you know, building out that supply. And Megan, to to your point, um, one thing that I think is really interesting, it's like we saw Instagram shopping, which was like really released within Instagram. But then we also saw Meta doing things like rolling out their threads platform, which is almost like a different take. It's like, okay, maybe our jobs to be done isn't exactly text content, but what if we, you know, take a swing at it and like take our user base and like almost create their own community and whatever. And I'd be curious, you're probably a little bit closer to the ground than we are a couple of months out after launch. I think what they launch in July, July, I want to say, um, early July. But um, I'd be curious in terms of if, if you know anything of how the platform's progressing. When I saw it first come out, I was like, okay, wow, there's a lot of hype, amazing onboarding, easy to get there. But like the one thing about a social network is it needs to be organic and needs to like be a real network. You can't fake or bootstrap. It's really hard to bootstrap yeah. or fake a, a social network. So like I think Ramon and I had a podcast and we were talking about it and I thought threads was going to work. I just thought it was going to take a lot more time because you're going to push it out to everyone and then you'd have all these groups sort of form and they need time to like cook and bake and build their own thing. It wasn't going to be a, a Twitter killer overnight, but mm -hmm. I'd be curious if you had any insight in, you know, in terms of like the company strategy there rolling it out and and you know what you what what your take is on that as a platform? Well, here's a question: Do either of you use Threads actively? Um, I don't. Uh, I think that's the problem that there was no onboarding. Yeah. The onboarding was too frictionless. It was click a button. Yeah. There's no buy-in, and it's much harder to reactivate a churned cohort than than actually have people, um, you know, be onboarded onto the experience. Um, that's that's I know the question was if I'm using it on my personal take on it, but there it is. No, I love it. What about you, Blaine? Yeah, I, I use it. I probably use it a little more than Ramon. Like I kind of I'm a lurker. I'll like pop in. I'll see what's going yeah. on. I'm not like writing and creating content. We were doing some stuff on it for a while, um, even from some of our like, uh, you know, business accounts and stuff like that in terms of like creating content and testing it. But um, yeah, I'm, I, I put myself more in the lurker category, but in lurker, but interested. Yeah. So it's really funny. I'm asking because I was so bullish on threads in the beginning. Like I was out like talking to the BBC. I was in the Wall Street Journal. I was like, guys, this is the next big thing. And like, this is huge. And the frictionless onboarding. And I'm kind of like biting, you know, my tongue a little because, well, first of all, I stand by what I say, meaning that it was a great move. It was timely and the onboarding was great. But then there's the flip side to Ramon's point, which is, you know, was it too easy to onboard? And was it almost like a DAO hack or like a growth hack? And I think that so much of what they do with threads is like growth hacking where, you know, with Snap, for example, if you guys still use Snap, they have memories, right? that it, those are growth hacks just to get you back on the platform to view your memories for over 30 seconds, daily active user. And so a lot of the thread stuff, it just feels like growth hacking now. And I'll go on threads because I miss Twitter. I was, I like really miss scrolling something text space. So I think it is satisfying that need. Um, and I think it's clear in its jobs to be done because it's a separate app, which is great. But I agree there was no buy-in to download and install. And I think that funnel is going to be really interesting to see where it goes. And 
I don't know. I'd be really curious to see what their active users are right now. Yeah, I, I was really bullish too. Um, I hope it works. I really wanted to. I think text yeah, is such a different form of media that yeah. we crave. Um, you know, you, you, text is interpreted different by everyone. There's so many different dynamics of text as media that it has that I think there's definitely room. I mean, it's their best chance, right? It was a great move. Yeah is their best chance for creating a new media property for, you know, getting more money from advertisers. And I hope it works. My challenge was that I was being fed on my feed, just like, you know, People Magazine and things that like I have no interest in, but don't underestimate having a huge audience. Maybe they fix it around, add web app and and go from there. Um, but I'm curious- Well, that's the point really quickly before I forget, sorry to interrupt, yeah. is- it's like the people you follow on Instagram, you automatically followed on threads, right? But then those jobs to be done are different, right? So like I love people on Instagram because I get the pictures and stuff, but I don't really care what they have For to sure. say. You know, my Twitter is all politics and tech, and that's what I would want my threads to be as well. But it's a lot more pop culture and shopping and brands than I would have wanted. So like that's the other issue. Right. And it's really hard to revert that. I mean, you already had mm -hmm. like... My account is like, oh shit, like my high school friends are also on here now. Right. Like, I don't want that. So, um, exactly. so what do you do? You can't undo that. Um, and that, that goes back to like the effortless one click onboarding of yeah. like follow everyone, et cetera. Yeah. Um, I know you mentioned Snap and I'm curious on like the different dynamics. Like how would you, it seems like Snap really understands their job to be done, right? Like they yeah. They really drive almost to a fault, though. Yeah. OK, I would love to learn more. Well, I think Snap is, you know, it's a classic, classic example, in my opinion, of just this perfect um, understanding of their users and just a great, simple app, right? Like it really understands the demographics 12 to 21. It's fun. It's quirky. The UX is kind of weird, but it's like intentionally weird right? Because grownups can't be using it, adults can't be using it and that kind of thing. But the problem is when you're so good at that niche and you're so good at that specific job, it makes it really hard to expand. And I think, you know, during my time at Snap, we tried over and over again to build a business value prop or to, you know, expand into uh, deals on maps or try new products. AR shopping was a really big push. But the problem is, it was so hard for anyone to think of Snap as anything other than a silly messaging app. And, you know, silly, I'm using intentionally, right? Like to be funny with your friends or quirky. They were, it was really hard to change users' impression of Snap. But I think it's been easier with Instagram with certain features. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I feel like, you know, actually, it's funny that you say it's like the user base 12 to 21 and like intention, yeah. almost intentionally because like I was right in that, probably that first cohort of SAP users where I was in college, I downloaded it like right when it came out. I think it was what, like 2013 or 14, yeah. something like that. And and then slowly as the product evolved, <laughs> I found myself, I was like, oh man, I'm getting old. I don't even know how to use Snapchat anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, but but maybe that was a little bit intentional, but I, it, it seems like, you know, I'd also love to have a better understanding of what you guys were trying to accomplish from the partnership side, right? Because as the product evolved, there was things like, you know, the medias, the stories, there was like, why, why don't you just like cue me and Ramon and obviously like the audience in on 
like what Snapchat is all about. Because you've got the messaging. You can obviously send the disappearing disappearing messaging. I can see where my friends are on the, the map. I can see the Bitmoji. Um, but talk to me a little bit more about like what the partnerships initiatives are. What what are like the media initiatives, the stories, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Well, here's the thing, right? Like to talk about kind of an underlying theme to our entire conversation is iOS 14. And I know us three have talked about it before, but iOS 14 has just changed the dynamics on these social platforms, but really all platforms. So anything ad revenue based so intensely that I think, you know, everyone's doing a little bit of a strategy pivot. So that was kind of the context in which I joined Snap, where they're like, oh, shit, you know, this thing is going to take away all of our data. We have no PII anymore. We're losing revenue right and left. Advertisers are are leaving. Marketers drop Snap. They're the first to go from the share of wallet, right? Because it's a niche demographic. So Snap was hit really hard as compared to Facebook, et cetera. So the whole strategy was, how do we expand our offering? How do we monetize beyond ads? And frankly, how do we, with the ads we have, get users to stay in the app longer? And I think that's a super reasonable goal. And I think you can say that all platforms were thinking about this, um, but all tried different strategies. So one of the things I was working on at Snap, for example, was AR shopping. So the idea with AR shopping is, Snap truly does have, you know, best in class or very good AR technology. And so how do you leverage that to get someone into a buying experience? The goal, of course, is to have them spend more time in Snap, open the app more often, and then hopefully entice advertisers to use organic products so that they spend more on Snap, right? It's kind of this very simple strategy where every new product we launched or every new partnership we launched was about driving um, that that bottom line number, and so that's what a lot of we were a lot of what I was focused on. And you know, it's tough. I mean, we were prepping for iOS fourteen at Meta years before it came out. You know, and I think Snap didn't do that kind of work up front, candidly, and they were struggling and scrambling when it launched to just, oh my God, let's try this, let's try that, let's try this in order to drive revenue. And so um, that was kind of the context. And so that was a lot of the deals that I did and, and my time spent there. Yeah. Um, Megata, it seems, you know, based on all of your experience with with commerce and, and all of this, what, given all of this, what is it that excites you now? Um, what are the the commerce applications that you are most excited about today and get you fired up? Yeah, I mean, well, first, you know, being a big company, big tech girl my whole career, I took a big risk kind of going out on my own and being so embedded in the startup ecosystem. But like, I'm truly putting my money where my mouth is. Like I'm betting on the future generation of social commerce and creator companies. Like I think the reality is, as we talked about, these platforms aren't doing what they were supposed to do or could do to support their communities. So like a reckoning is coming and I'm trying to be in on that. Um, the stuff specifically that excites me is, you know, I know creators were really hot a year ago and now, you know, investors don't want to talk about them, but there's still a lot that can be done to enable or monetize creators and not just in, you know, the photo or image space. It can be podcasts. It can be, you know, uh, creating businesses. It could be creating merch. There's just so much there. Social commerce. I'm still like my passion is still social commerce. And 
Um, if anyone could have done it, it should have been Instagram and they didn't. So there's now a lot of time before they try again where someone new can kickstart something. Um, and then just social networks, period, right? I think it's been really interesting intellectually following the rise and fall of Be Real, of um, Fizz is kind of a new emerging um, startup at Stanford campus that's expanding. So just all these new social networks emerging because, again, you know, Facebook is dead. Instagram is more media than social. Snap is super niche. YouTube is content consumption. So is TikTok. Like, where am I interacting with my friends? Is this just iMessage? You know? So I think that's going to be really interesting. So, so what does that look like? The future of commerce that you mentioned? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, and I've written about this a lot too, I think the future of con- commerce is like the past a little where we were overly betting on Instagram and YouTube to solve commerce and dictate the future of shopping. Whereas now what I see with a lot of the brands I work with or businesses I advise they want to take traffic back to their website and they're really interested in doing pop-up shops, you know, like Omnichannel is it again, right? And Omnichannel was something we didn't talk about for five years, but we were talking about five plus years ago. So I think it's a little bit of this regression back into what used to work, tried and true methods, and then also dropping a lot of methods that used to work like paid media, right? The whole customer acquisition game on social is really changing. And so marketers are spending less of their money on Instagram, for example, and redirecting that towards their creators, their communities. You know, Beyond Yoga did like a walk in Santa Monica that, you know, had like 60 people show up and it was a walk. It was a free activation. But again, it's these hyper local um, community activations. And again, back to basics that I think um, brands are playing with. And I think it's getting really interesting again. Yeah. Uh, I, I lived for a few years in Austin and the, the founder of Outdoor Voices, Ty Haney, I think is her name. It's crazy. She's doing another brand that's like a healthy energy drink. Um, and it's the same playbook. It's activations and runs and just mm-hmm. getting really riled up. And it's just, it's just wonderful to watch her because it's- yeah. It's a superpower and it's like, it's what we were talking about five years ago, but like we went through sort of this gap and now that's, that's yeah. what it is again. Um, another interesting one I've seen is, and, and this is just for DTC brands to like find ways to not depend so much on, on ads, because of what you mentioned of iOS 14. What's that platform where like you connect with all your neighbors? I forget. Next door. Yeah, so Nextdoor. Um, and I saw people, you know, hiring people on Nextdoor to promote to their community, like a meal delivery service, et cetera. And so um, it, it's just uh, brands need to think outside of the Facebook and, and Instagram world. Um, however, on that note, I want to hear your thoughts on how you're thinking about content as as a as as an arm of dtc brands you know organic content is working so well creators are are playing a part in that again um but you know this is what my previous marketplace was which is pretty much like hiring creators to do your own, own ugc so you can build your own distribution so how should brands be thinking about creating their own content to build their own distribution so 
I really think I've thought about this a lot, actually. So thank you for asking that. And I think really the future of brand building and marketing in kind of a post iOS 14, post platform world is these three C's, right? It's content creators and community. It's not paid media. It's not ads. It's not the playbook 1.0. Like I think this is the new playbook, right? So it's about, let's start with content to your point, Ramon. It's about authentic content, you know, not oversaturating your viewers or users with, you know, pushes to sell or random content. It's about authentic content that really speaks to your brand voice. It's about using the right creators that align with your community, that speak the same language as you, that spread the same message and values as you. And then third, it's about really putting that community first, right? It's about what does that community want and taking that upwards feedback into the brand building, into the products, into the messaging and staying really tight with your community. And, you know, to a certain extent, this all existed post iOS 14, but I think the importance of all of this is just on a much bigger scale now than than it ever was. Yeah, and you know, that's where AI comes into play. It's like, well, if content is the move, how do you reduce the friction layers to generating more yeah. content? I get really excited about this because this is why Blaine and I are, are building Cast Magic. It's audio we thought was the easiest way to remove friction. And you know, even for our creators that we're hiring at Cast Magic, Blaine and I, if we have a product launch or a feature launch, we will record a call between him and I, like announcing, explaining the entire feature, and then we'll get the transcript and the outputs and send them to our creators. So they're really in touch with like every single thing about the product. And, um, you know, I think brands should definitely be leveraging AI to repurpose a lot of content um, and continue to reduce the barriers to content because it is expensive to make content. Completely agreed. And I think... There's a real big nuance there, which is in terms of content creation, yes, AI can kind of make it more seamless and get it out to market quickly. But then at the same time, you have to really still be careful to embody that voice and, you know, carry that message forward authentically. Yeah. And I think, Megan, you you hit the nail on the head there. And that's something we think a lot about. It's like, how can you work? How can AI work alongside the creator so you can maintain uh, the authenticity, right? Where it's you, you've screened everything, and you you're like, if I'm pressing on publish on this, this better sound exactly like me, and I better stand yeah. by everything this says. Um, so yeah, I think it's really interesting. And the other thing I'd say is this playbook that you're talking about about um, what was it? it was community creators and content, content. right? Mm -hmm. This playbook can be applied and. It's the same playbook that we're applying to a bootstrap SaaS company that you can apply to a direct-to-consumer company yeah. that you can apply if you're a VC-backed founder and you're founding a B2B company, right? Like, so I think totally. I think that framework is, and that's what we see the best, you know, companies doing. It's been fueling our growth and it's it's fueling yeah. some of the fastest-growing companies out there. So I I love that in terms of how you're able to, you know, distill it, and make it really easy to remember. Yeah, I mean, I'm also predicting that it's a moment for DTC. Like DTC is, you know, it was really hot for a while, then it became not cool. And I think it's going to be very in vogue going forward. I'm betting a lot on it. So I think your viewership is just going to blow up. So everyone tune into the DTC pod because it's the hottest podcast. I love that. Well, anyway, 
as we wrap up here, Megana, is there are there any other um, you know things on the horizon for you? Other last things you're interested in? I know we didn't really get too far into TikTok. I'd love I'd also love as we wrap up just to hear um, your quick take on you know how that fits within the commerce ecosystem because a lot of the creator initiatives that we see and that we see brands going after, especially in D 2 C and their ad platform, is TikTok. So would love to um, you know maybe hear what you have to say about TikTok and if there's any other last things that you'd like to go over, happy to cover those as well. Totally. So TikTok is, you know, you got to be there, right? So everyone needs to be on TikTok. All the brands I talk to are there. I think the real open question, though, is not about their viability as a platform. That's a given. It's around TikTok shops. And I'm really curious. I'm watching it very closely because they have a huge opportunity because there's so much trust between creators and their users on TikTok. That community is very strong. So there's a big opportunity to translate that into conversions and purchases. But they can also fall into the same traps that we did at Instagram at Snap and every other platform that's unsuccessfully tried shopping. So I'm hoping they're going to be very intentional and thoughtful about how they approach shopping. Um, I know they are getting a little more involved in fulfillment than other platforms. You know, they have a lot of partners with Chinese manufacturers as well. So there's a lot of like nuance to the way they're launching it, but I'll be watching closely to see if they fall into some common traps. Final words. Um, I think everyone needs to go support their brands, their DTC brands and their creators, you know, shop on their websites, you know, for now. And I think it's important, you know, you as a user to just think about um, where am I spending a lot of my time? Am I spending less time on Instagram? I certainly am, you know, and instead I'm following my creators to wherever they go. I'm listening to more podcasts. So I think that trend is going to affect all of us. And and I'm really curious to see how it all plays out. I have one takeaway, one prediction question for you before we go, which is you think X.com is going to become the everything app and pull off the WeChat of of the West? I think that, I think Elon Musk has stated that's his intention. So, and you know, he is a PayPal guy. So he, you know, he could very easily or had the experience to bring in the payments infrastructure and stuff. But so I guess the answer is yes, it can easily become the super app. But then the other question is who's going to be using it? <laughs> a bunch of words. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Well, we'll have to do a rerun um, in the future after and and break it down and after we see how it goes down. And and last thing, I feel like I could talk to you guys forever. I like we need to hang out. This was so fun. Well, we will at the uh, at the event, and we're shouting out here. Yes. And this will be the first episode that we're shouting it out. We are throwing a DTC Pod event in LA. So um, if you're interested in coming, there's only a couple invites left. DM me or Ramon and we'll get you on the list. But Megan is going to be there as well as a whole bunch of other guests that have been on our pod. Um, so we're really excited for that. That's coming up October 5th. And last thing before we go, Megan, where can our listeners find you and connect with you? Why don't you shout out your your social so we know where to find you? Yeah. So you guys, I'm really all about LinkedIn right now. I feel like LinkedIn is my new ex or my no new So yeah, you right. <laughs> yeah, don't don't add me on Snap. Isn't that like a red flag if a guy asks for your Snap? You're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on Instagram, but it's mostly 
my social stuff. I'm at Bagana and then LinkedIn is just my full name. So yeah, check me out. I write a lot. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the pod, Megana. We had a great Thanks time. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.